I wonder how many of you could complete this sentence that has historically been a part of a Christian burial service. Ashes to dust to good. What you may not know is that that statement is part of a larger statement used at a graveside liturgy, and it comes from the Book of Common Prayer. The Book of Common Prayer was developed after the Protestant Reformation swept England, after the Anglican Church broke from the Roman Catholic Church, and it was an attempt to try and bring unity amongst the churches in their schism from uh, the Roman Catholic Church. The, the, the Book of Common Prayer became so important that in the 1600s, pastors were persecuted by the Anglican Church for not using it, a famous one being John Bunyan. Now, that language, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, is part of a larger statement in this particular liturgy. Here's how it reads. For as much as it hath pleased Almighty God in his wise providence to take out of this world the soul of our deceased brother, we therefore commit his body to the ground, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, looking for the general resurrection in the last day and the life of the world to come through our Lord Jesus Christ, who, at whose second coming, in glorious majesty to judge the world, the earth and the sea shall give up their dead, and the corruptible bodies of those who sleep in him shall be changed, and made like unto his own glorious body, according to the mighty working whereby he is able to subdue all things unto himself. So it's unfortunate to me that most people only know ashes to ashes, dust to dust, because what's really important in that statement that I just read is the fact that right after ashes to ashes and dust to dust comes this statement, looking for the general resurrection in the last day. Those words are incredibly important, and in fact, ashes to ashes and dust to dust, without reference to the resurrection, those words are absolutely meaningless. So today we're going to talk about the resurrection. And for many of you, when I use the word resurrection, you immediately think Easter and you think Jesus. And that's true. But today what we're going to talk about is the resurrection of both believers specifically and also non-believers generally. And what I hope to do is help you understand something about this idea of the resurrection and also for you to know why it's so important and why it is the last step of the good news in the gospel. So before we get into 1 Corinthians 15, let me just give you a little bit of background. Six things here. First, a definition. When I say resurrection, I mean the reversal of death. I mean a reuniting of soul and body that are separated at death and where a person is given new life and they're given that new life after life after death. So those words are very specific. So you can think of resurrection then as life after life after death. The resurrection is a future event where God completes salvation and he completes judgment by raising the dead, uniting soul and body, and establishing a new physical existence for these resurrected people either on the new earth or in hell. Secondly, we've been talking about heaven for the last two weeks, and the word heaven is an appropriate and biblical term, 
particularly when we're talking about setting our minds on heaven from Colossians 3 or the glory of heaven in Revelation 4 like last week. But what you need to know is that heaven for a believer is really not technically where you will live forever. Heaven, rather, as we've talked about it over the last couple of weeks, could better be thought of, of as an existence that we have on the new earth, that the final state is the new heavens and the new earth. And we'll talk about that completely next week. So to be very specific, believers live in the new earth, a renewed creation that becomes like the Garden of Eden. Third, I've said life after life after death intentionally because the resurrection of the dead has not happened yet. So those who have already died do not have resurrected bodies yet. We're still waiting for that moment in God's redemptive plan. And between when they have died and when the resurrection happens is what theologians call the intermediate state. It means that they are not in a physical existence, but that existence, that existence is nonetheless very real. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. So when a loved one dies who knows Christ as their Savior, they're immediately in the presence of Jesus, but they're not resurrected yet. So while the resurrection has not yet happened, there is still joy and happiness and a real experience for those who are in Christ. There's also a real experience of punishment and torment for those who are still in their sins. And so there is a life that is yet to come after life after death. And that life involves a resurrected body. Fourth, you need to know that the resurrection does not mean that we are given a second chance to receive Christ after we've died. So the Hindu belief in reincarnation, that the soul of a person simply migrates to another person or another thing until purification is achieved, does not fit with a biblical understanding of the afterlife, nor does purgatory. The Roman Catholic belief that one is able to be purified in the afterlife in order to either atone for their own sins or to perfect them from heaven. In fact, Hebrews 9.27 tells us that it's appointed for a man once to die and then comes the judgment. And as well, Hebrews 10.10 tells us that Christ made a once-for-all sacrifice. So we don't pay for our own sins. Christ paid for them. Fifth, you may have heard perhaps something called soul sleep. 1 Corinthians 15, 51, a text that we'll look at in our time in the Word this morning, does refer to death as sleeping, but the use of that word or phrase should not be taken, taken overly literally as if death results in sort of a period of unconsciousness. That's what sometimes is called soul sleep. A person goes to sleep in this view and then wakes up at the resurrection. That also doesn't fit with a biblical framework where, again, Paul says, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The writers of the New Testament often use the word sleep, but they use it in order to present the image that we just simply, when a person dies, they move from one realm of existence to another in the same way that even now we move from sleeping to what it means to be awake. So when a person dies, what happens is there is a separation of the soul and the body. Believers are welcomed into Christ's presence where they experience joy and fellowship with him, but they are not yet raised from the dead. This life after death, this intermediate state is real, it's joyful, but it's not yet physical. 
And the resurrection of the dead is God's final step in his redemptive plan to restore things back to himself. And then finally, you need to know that the concept of a physical resurrection was countercultural in the first century. The dominant worldview at the time when the book of 1 Corinthians was written was shaped by Plato, who believed in the immortality of the soul but not the body. In fact, he posited that the soul was the only aspect of a human being that really mattered, and that the body was merely a case or a shell for the all-important eternal soul. And as a result, this view then bled into what was called Gnosticism, believing that it really didn't matter what you did with the body as long as your soul was in the right place. And that's part of the reason why Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 Verses 12 to 20 describes the body as the temple of the Holy Spirit. He says, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. Because what was happening is people were believing, I can just do whatever I want with my body because my soul is kept, it's pure, it's right. It doesn't matter what I do with my body as long as I care for my soul. And Paul wanted this church to know that the Christian faith links both soul and body And that Jesus came to not just save your soul, he came to save all of you, including the physical you, and he even came to save the world and to bring it back under his rule and reign. So the plan of salvation is not just about you and what's inside of you. It's about all of you, and it's about the entire created order. Sin hasn't just affected you, it has infected the entire world. And one day Christ is going to return and claim everything that belongs to him and bring it back to the way that it used to be. In other words, what you need to know is that your body matters. There's a future day of resurrection where the dead will be brought back to life, and on that day those who are in Christ will have a body like Jesus's, I believe that we'll recognize one another, we'll live in fellowship with one another, we'll live in fellowship with Jesus, and we will live on the new earth. So what the resurrection as a doctrine shows us is the important value that God places on both the spiritual realm and the physical realm. It shows us that both our souls and our bodies are important to God, and the final moment that we await in God's redemptive plan is this subduing of all things to himself by means of the resurrection from the dead. This idea, this concept, this doctrine was so important that when the church at Corinth was beginning to waver or to doubt the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead, Paul wrote to them and wrote an entire chapter in order to explain to them what the resurrection is all about. Chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians is an important chapter. It addresses the issue of the resurrection because there were people in that church who were either doubting or denying both Christ's resurrection and any future resurrection for believers. In fact, in verse 17, Paul goes so far as to say this, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are, not, and you are still in your sins. So the resurrection is that, vital, is that vital and that important to the nature of what the gospel is. So look at verse 35. We see that he says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come? 
And then verse 36, he says, you foolish person, which I take to mean that these questions were not humble questions offered from people who were just simply struggling to figure out what's really going to happen in the future. These are written, this chapter is written to a group of people who are thinking about the resurrection, and in their minds, they, they're like, are you serious? Like, dead people are going to come out of their graves? Like, How's that even possible? Like, it's not just that they're trying to struggle through this, it's they're actually falling into disbelief. And so Paul wanted to counter this platonic worldview and this disbelief by helping the church know what the resurrection is all about. And here's how you can think about it. The resurrection is a real and similar but different life than what we live right now. So there are things about the resurrection that have aspects of continuity to them in terms of how we live right now, and there are other things that have discontinuity. And what Paul's going to do through this chapter is show us how there are some things about the resurrection that are very similar to where we live right now, and there are things that are so different it would just completely blow your mind. And what he wants to do is to help this church and help us know about the importance of the resurrection. So Paul's going to move from the physical world all the way down to Christ's victory. We want to see four aspects here this morning. In verses 35 to 39, he identifies the physicality of the resurrection or the fact that it involves physical bodies. And what he does in order to convince this church that the resurrection is indeed true is he moves from things that can be understood in the world in which they live, and then he moves to the things that are more mysterious. So he starts with, what can we all agree on? Or what sort of commonality can I establish with you? He starts in verse 36. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So Paul immediately points to a farming analogy And he essentially says that when you farm and when you plant, it involves taking something that is dead, you put it in the ground, and it comes to life. And you do this all the time, and you believe that when you plant something in the ground that is not, doesn't appear to be alive, that something will happen to it, and it will become alive. So this category or concept of life after death is more familiar to these people and more familiar to us than we even realize. Every time they plant, they are believing that life can come from death. So perhaps you did, like I had this experience in about third or fourth grade, I think it was, where we took a a bean seed, and we put it in a little plastic bag, we took a brown paper towel and moistened it, and then put that bag inside, or put that towel inside that bag, and then we watched the, the little bean begin to grow. And miraculously, over a period of time, as the sun interacted and the nutrients from that water began to cause this, this beautiful reaction to take place, this seed was transformed from this what seemed to be something that was dead, and suddenly a green shoot came out of it, and it was transformed into something different. If you were to take a group of kids who have never seen that reality ever, and they'd never seen how things grow, and they didn't know that things grow, and just show them a bag of beans and said, from this bag of beans will come all sorts of plants, they would look at that and go, you're crazy. But no one's going to stop a farmer in the field as he's planting right now and throwing seed in his ground saying, brother, what are you doing? You're throwing all your seed away. We know exactly what he's doing. He's planting seed. You don't stop your neighbor when they hear or she are spreading grass seed over the yard saying, why are you throwing all your grass seed away? Because we know that in order for grass to grow, you have to plant. 
In order to plant, you have to put something that's dead and put it in the ground, and then it becomes alive. In order for something to come to life, it must die first. And so what Paul is saying is that the resurrection, this idea of putting something in the ground and then having it come to life, is not that unusual. However, you just haven't seen it yet. It's the difference between having a mindset of a third or a fourth grader who's seen the bean experiment and knows what will happen, and a kindergartner who's never seen it and just looks at a bag of beans and thinks, oh, nothing could ever happen with that. Oh, they don't know the potential that exists. So Paul says in the same way, before something comes to life, it must die. That's just true in the world in which you live. Then he goes on, and what you sow in verse 37 is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel. See, he presses the analogy. What is sown into the ground is going to be different than what comes to life. In the same way that when you plant a seed, it's the same essence, but it takes on a different shape. He continues, perhaps of wheat or some other grain, but God gives it a body as he has chosen to each kind of seed its own body. His point is, what you plant in the ground is of one form, and when it has life, it has another. And then verse 39, he points to other life forms. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, and another for birds, and another for fish. So his point is, is that not everything that is alive on earth has the same body. There's a different kind of body for humans, a different kind of body for animals, a different kind of body for birds and for fish. All of them are alive, but they don't take the same form. And so his point is, is that we experience life in many different forms on earth. It's part of the created order, and we just think that's a natural part of the way that life is. Birds are alive, and they're different than humans, and humans are alive, and they're different than a dog. That's just the way that they're all alive, but they take different forms. And the reason that we almost assume that to be the case is because we've seen it and experienced it. And the challenge is, is having not experienced or seen the resurrection, this church was beginning to doubt its validity. His point is this. He's trying to show that the resurrection is not some far-fetched uh, philosophical or crazy idea Believing that placing a body in the ground that will one day be raised again to new life is not illogical and it's not as crazy as the church in Corinth might believe. In fact, they could look at the created order and they could see similar realities to that of the resurrection. It's not so unbelievable that the resurrection would take place. In fact, after it happens, when we live on the new earth, the resurrection will seem as normal to us then as seeing a field of grain that's grown because of someone planting seed. We just don't see that reality yet. So while it's hard to imagine what it would be like to have resurrected bodies and live on the new earth, this text would indicate that when we're there, it will seem as logical and as normal as other things that we take for granted every single day. In fact, a resurrected life, a resurrected existence will seem so normal and so right that the life that we've lived now will actually seem like the odd one as we see what happens when brokenness and sinfulness is removed, and we see the way that life was really meant to be. So this life for us is normal, but this life is not normal. And that's what Paul is driving in. Secondly, there's a matter of glory here. In verses 40 to 44, 
Paul identifies that there's a, a different kind of glory related to these bodies. So these bodies have a physical aspect to them, but there's something more. Now, last week we talked about glory, the glory of God from Revelation 4, and we talked about glory being defined as God's weightiness or his worthiness, his otherness, or his sovereign beauty. I suggest to you that God's glory is the most valuable, most attractive, most dangerous reality in the universe. And what Paul says in verses 40 to 44 is that we, on the new earth, share in that resurrected glory. Look at verse 40. To make this point that there are different kinds of glories, he points to the difference between glory in heaven and glory on earth. He says there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. So he's saying don't, don't be surprised that there's a different kind of glory between this resurrected body and the glory that you have now because you already know that there's different glories in terms of things that are in heaven or in the sky and things that are on earth. He continues, there is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for stars differs, for star differs from star in glory. So he says, look, there's different glories that exist even in the world in which you live. So it's not implausible that there would be a different glory as it relates to the resurrection. In fact, verse 42, he makes it very, very clear. He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. So what is this resurrection glory that we're going to experience? Take your Bible and go to Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. There's other passages that we could um, look at. I've listed some of them in the notes this morning, like 1 John chapter 3 or Romans chapter 8. But this one, Philippians 3 and verse 20, is the one that I really want you to see. In fact, this is a text that when you go and vote on Tuesday, I want this text to be in your mind and heart. Crazy as it sounds, I want you connecting a voting booth with the resurrection. Let me show you how this works. Verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want you to be a good citizen of the state of Indiana, but I also want you, as you're exercising your citizenship rights and privileges, that you're reminded, I'm doing this citizen thing here, but my citizenship is not ultimately here. I have another citizenship. I have another world in which my heart and my home is set. And then he says, verse 21, what is the beauty of this heavenly citizenship? He says that who will, Christ will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Notice that. So our bodies, whatever's going to happen, they're going to be like his glorious bo body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So the point of the resurrection, we'll talk about this at the end, is not just about what's going to happen to you, it's what's going to happen to the entire created order of which, if you're a follower of Jesus, you get to share in the glory of Christ, such that John, in 1 John chapter 3, says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And so Paul says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. Back to 1 Corinthians 15, he identifies next, in this category of glory, what this glory will be like. 
Verses 42 to 44, he sets up a series of contrasts to highlight the difference between earthly and heavenly glory and earthly and heavenly bodies. Notice verse 42, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, then there also is a spiritual body. See what Paul is saying? He's saying if you have a real physical existence that is somehow perishable, then there's also gonna be an existence that's gonna be imperishable. And this contrast is stunning. Just use your imagination with me for a moment and think of what it will be like to live a life very similar to this one, a life where you are as aware of your, um, I want to say livingness, where you are as aware of your consciousness, that's the right word, where you are aware, I'm alive, like, that hurt, I'm alive. And I'm, and I'm breathing. You are that aware in the new heaven and the new earth, but it is characterized by glory, by power. It is characterized by perfection, by joy, by fulfillment, by happiness. Think, think of, the most, of the most enjoyable moments of your life. Like the moments when you're like, I wish this could last forever, and what if it could? I mean, think of, in the new heaven and the new earth, what would you, like if you could do anything that you want to do that you can't do right now, what would it be? I wonder if the new heaven and new earth will be an announcement. If you want to dunk, go here. And so, and it was, I want to dunk. And so you go over there and you're like, check it out. Boom, you know. And if you've ever, those of you who want to do backflips, come over here. And so then you're doing backflips for all of eternity. If you want to run a five-minute mile, just go. And everyone gets an award for participating at the end. You know, and just, just go. Or if you, you wanted to bake a perfect cake, come to, and so we're, all these people are baking. I don't know what it's going to be like, but just imagine like the beautiful things of life that it never ends. Or think of it like a vacation where you don't have to think the money's going to run out. Amen. Think of it like, like when I go on vacation, I have this terrible thing that I do. I figure out when the halfway mark of my vacation is, and I get really depressed when I hit the halfway mark of my vacation. <laughs> And sometimes I found myself thinking, why do I do that? I'm counting my days. Oh, it's halfway over already. I got, I got half my vacation left, right? When I was on sabbatical in 2014, I was like, oh, my sabbatical's halfway over. I still had nine weeks, you know, whatever it was, right? What are we complaining about? And so we have this mindset. This is great, but it's not going to last. The sun's going to set, the fire's going to go out, the s'mores are going to spoil, your kids are going to be angry with one another. It's, it's just, and the reality is in the new heaven and the new earth, that's, that's, it's not going to be like that at all. It'll be like it is right now, the very best. It'll be full of glory, and it'll never end. It's unbelievable. And if someone were to say, no, Paul says, look, birds, animals, Sun, star, glory, you plant? You just haven't seen it yet. You're like kindergartners thinking, that bag of beans can't do nothing, it's dead. Oh, no, 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 watch this and see what comes out of it. You just haven't seen the other side. Christ was the first fruits of a resurrection that is yet to come. Verses 45 to 49, we also see image. So physical body, glory, image. He says, thus it is written, the first man became a living being. What he's going to do, he's going to compare and contrast, um, actually contrast Adam and Christ. 
He says, the first man, Adam, became a living being. So he was made of dust. God made him alive. And then he says, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So it's not just that Adam received life. Now the second Adam, Christ, is going to give life. Adam couldn't give life. He had to receive it. But Christ now is the one who is going to give it. Verse 46, but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. In other words, we're just in chapter 1 of chapter 2. Or as the great quote that Eric read by C.S. Lewis, we're just on the title page. We haven't even seen the rest of the story that's to develop yet. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Verse 48, and as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. In other words, you're alive right now. We all have a connection to Adam. Or as a little girl after first service said, we all have Adam's Adam's. I like that. That's good. We all have Adam's Adam's. We have Adam baked into us in terms of who we are. We are so connected to Adam. And then he says, the second man is from heaven. So as the man of dust, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So if someone says, how in the world can I bear the image of some Jesus that's been resurrected? Paul's answer would be, well, you bear the image of the first Adam. Why wouldn't you bear the image of the second Adam? In the same way that our bodies are deeply and fundamentally connected to Adam, and the earth now, so too they will be deeply and fundamentally connected to Jesus in the future. So think of all of the things that are a part of what it means to be human. Just think of those things, of what what does it mean to be human? We need shelter, we need food, we need water, we need sleep, we get tired. I mean, it's just a part of who we are. We age, we age, we age. I age. I'm aging. This Thursday, I was playing basketball with my son, Jeremiah. Had a little bit of a tight calf going in. Didn't stretch because I don't have to stretch, right? Got in, and something popped. And I went online, and oh, it didn't look good. And it said, a common injury of men in their 40s and 50s. (laughs) And one article, I swear, one article said, particularly among those who were former athletes. I'm like, come on, right? You know? So imagine how freeing and liberating it will be to have all of those things reversed. As fundamental as those things are to our humanity, our resurrected bodies will be as connected to things like immortality and imperishability. No more viruses. You don't have to wonder when you're greeting someone today. Did you wash that hand? Right? (laughs) And what's more, if someone gives you an odd greeting, you don't have to walk away going, that was weird. You'll always know what people mean. You don't have, there's no emojis in heaven anymore that is, or on the new earth. You never have to interpret. Everything is clear. There's no worrying about what people are thinking. We are full of power We're without fear of any of it changing. We are free from sickness, free from death. Imagine what it would be like. You can hardly even imagine because we're so connected to Adam and this earth. And Paul says, you're going to be connected to Jesus, and you can't even imagine what that world's going to be like. The problem is, is you're like kindergartners who've only seen a bag of beans who've never met water. You can't even imagine the harvest of what is yet to come. And then in verse 50, he makes a turn. 
The final aspect of the resurrection is highlighted here in regards to the future hope that is offered to those who have put their trust in Jesus. The resurrection is something to hope for for multiple reasons. Verse 50 says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does perishable inherit the imperishable. In other words, there's a problem with this world. As wonderful as it is, there's something fundamentally wrong with the world in which we live. And then 51 to 54 goes on to tell us that there is a mysterious day that's coming. He says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed, which means that there's going to be people who are going to be alive when Jesus comes. There's some folks who are not going to die, but everyone's going to be changed. That's what this verse means. It doesn't mean, as my church growing up, they, well, they put it in the nursery, and this was like the, the mission statement for the nursery, that they will not all sleep, but they shall all be changed. It's, it's, it's cute, but it's really bad exegesis. That's not what was intended. And they probably knew it. But then in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed in that instant. So the guarantee is not everyone's going to die, but everyone is going to change. Why? Because the resurrection is that important to the gospel. That's why. Because it is the means by which Christ declares his ultimate victory. And Paul goes on to explain it. He says, when perishable puts on the imperishable, when the mortal puts on immortality. I can just imagine when he's, perhaps he's, he's as he did with so many of these letters, he was um, verbally dictating them and someone was, was translating them and writing them down on paper as fast as they could. I can imagine the Apostle Paul doing something like this. And when this perishable puts on Im- the imperishable, and when mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Here it is. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death. Notice he gets in the grill of death. Death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? You know why that matters? Because if you've ever laid a body in the grave, if you've ever laid a little body in the grave, you know you walk away from that grave and you think, this is not right. You don't leave loved ones in an empty field in the middle of the winter. And you walk away from the grave, and in effect, you can say to the enemy, this is not the final word. This is not the final word. There's coming a day when my Savior will return, and that the trumpet will sound, and this body, this little body, will be raised from the dead, and it will come alive, and it will be as real as this moment is right now, and I will see that loved one in glory, and I will wrap my arms around him or her, and I will be with them forever and with Christ. This day is not the final word. That's why the resurrection matters. It matters for some of you because cancer is a part of your life right now, and you know cancer is not the final word. Got a deformity, an illness that you're battling through, you need to know it is not the final word. You see, the point of the resurrection is not just the physical change of the followers of Jesus, as glorious as it is. No, the resurrection is the exclamation point on the victory that we have through Jesus Christ. It means he not only is so glorious and so victorious that he can forgive us of our sins and make atonement, but it is that he can take what we are as physical human beings and resurrect it from the grave and make us new people and cause us to dwell in his presence for all of eternity and establish the rule that nothing can ever change that. 
The beauty of the resurrection is not just the immortality, the glory, the power. It is all that, but it is that Jesus is the one who made that victory possible. So think of what it's going to be like to be in the new, the new heavens and the new earth, and we're walking around with real glorified bodies, and we see the one who made it possible for us to be there. So what does this resurrection mean now? I've asked you to think this thought with me. Over the last couple of weeks, if heaven is like that, or in this case now more specifically, if the new earth is like that, if the resurrection is like that, how do I live now? Three things. First, I want you to know that while life, while this life isn't all there is, it matters. The world around us is temporary. We are all in the process of dying and there is an eternity to be considered right now. That eternity, whether heaven or hell, as your destiny, is determined by what you do with Jesus now. There are no second chances. And your eternal destiny is based upon your response to your sin and your response to the offering of forgiveness provided through a relationship with Jesus. Do not make the mistake of thinking, well, when I die, there'll be another opportunity. There won't be. The Bible clearly says it's appointed for a man once to die, and then the judgment. And on that day, you want to be on the side of atonement through Christ. Secondly, while the body will be transformed, you need to know that what you do with your body now matters. There is still a subtle platonic view of soul and body in our culture, even with Christians. The idea of, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Or the idea even further, I'm spiritual, but what I do, I mean, doesn't really matter because I can, I can just still take care of my soul. You need to know that the condition of your heart matters, but so do your actions. Like, what's going on in your heart matters, but what you say with your mouth matters too. Like, having a pure mind, that matters, but having a pure body, in terms of what you do with your body, that also matters. Be careful about not falling into the trap of thinking, well, there's spiritual and then there's physical. And while this physical has yet to be fully subdued, it's still an important part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. He's going to take that body and make it completely new. And so as a result, obedience is not just a heart condition issue. It's a heart condition that translates into right words and right actions and right looks and right activities. That following Jesus is a physical activity as well as a heart-based activity. And then finally, while the resurrection is in the future, it matters right now. Verse 58, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Why is our labor not in vain? Why should we remain steadfast all the way to the end of our lives? Why should we keep serving? Why do we keep hoping as we're burying loved ones? Why can we say with hope, ashes to ashes and dust to dust, but to say it with sorrowful joy? Why? Because 
We're looking for the general resurrection in the last day and the life of the world to come through Jesus Christ our Lord. We are looking beyond the grave, beyond cancer, beyond relationships that are broken, beyond physical deformities, beyond all the brokenness of the world. We see all of this, we embrace it, and we know that life matters right now because I can continue to pray and pour my life into others and give my life for the gospel because at the end of the day, God's gonna raise me from the grave and declare once and for all that he's made all things new and Jesus will take everything in the created order, including your body and the earth, and say, this belongs to me. And he will set up his rule and reign for all eternity. We believe, and the Bible teaches, that there is life after, life after death. It's the resurrection, and it becomes not only our future hope, but also a motivator for how we live even now. You pray with me. Father in heaven, the challenges and the burdens within this room and with those who will hear this message are incredibly large They're so varied, and I pray, and I'm so grateful that you know the reality of what's happening in all of our hearts even now. Would you give some faith to believe for the first time in you? Would you give others the ability to trust in the midst of sorrow that's right on the doorstep of their life? God, would you make us a people who value not just the soul, but also the body? Help us to be an obedient and godly people. Church, as we close this morning, I'm just gonna give you a moment of silent meditation for you just to think, why are you here today, and what is this passage mean for your life? How's the Holy Spirit speaking to you? When you hear the music begin to play, you can be dismissed. There'll be people up here afterwards who'd love to pray with you if there's anything you'd like to pray about or a question that you'd like to have answered. But for the next few moments, let's just pause and ask the Lord to speak to us.